Hi, it's Derek Chalet, your host for this week's episode of Post-Pandemic Order. And we're joined today by George Packer, an award-winning journalist and writer who's one of the most insightful observers of American society and politics. George won the National Book Award for The Unwinding, An Inner History of a New America, which is a prescient, closely observed book about the transformation of America during the past three decades. And his most recent book, Our Man, Richard Holbrook and the End of the American Century, was just named a Pulitzer Prize finalist. George is a staff writer at The Atlantic Magazine, and in this month's issue, he's written an article entitled Underlying Conditions, which examines how the coronavirus crisis has exposed fissures in American society that have been years in the making. So to help put all this in perspective and to help explain how we got here, I can't think of anyone better than George. So we talked about this and more, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. I also worry that the next battleground is going to be the battleground over facts, which has been the battleground throughout Trump's presidency and the key fact of how many people are dying. George, thanks for joining us. It's always good to be with you, Derek. Um, and what I'd love to do is is dive in and talk about your story in the June 2020 issue of The Atlantic that's entitled Underlying Conditions. And I'd like to start by reading back to you a sentence that comes about in the middle of the story, which I think is a, is a nice way to kind of open up a conversation about what, what you were talking about. Uh, and you write... Uh, if the pandemic really is a kind of war, it's the first to be fought on this soil in a century and a half. Invasion and occupation expose a society's fault lines, exaggerating what goes unnoticed or accepted in peacetime, clarifying essential truths, raising the smell of buried rot. That's pretty powerful stuff. So, George, I'd like to know, what, I mean, you've, you've been a close observer of American society. It's potential, but also its ills over the last decade plus. And I want to talk about some of those earlier writing as well and how it applies to today. But reflecting on that on that sentence uh, as a window into this larger piece. So the pandemic's a war. It's the first we've really fought on this soil in quite, a, quite some time, and it's exposing our fault lines. Some people caution against the war metaphor because obviously this is not a human enemy. It, you know, we can't use propaganda against it. We can't outmaneuver it. We, there's limits to how far that analogy goes. So I don't, I try not to harp on it. I was actually using it because the president used it. He yep. called himself a wartime president. But if it's useful in thinking about what happens to a society when suddenly the shock of a war hits it. And what happens is we discover where our strengths are and where our weaknesses are. We discover what connections we have to other people who we haven't ever thought about because we suddenly need them. Right. And we're suddenly in it together because if you're human, you're on the same side right. of, this, of this confrontation. And what I have been seeing since early March is a really terrifying lack of readiness, lack of cohesion, um, a lack of uh, leadership, above all, at the national level, a sense that we're 
you know, we, we all know we're polarized along grounds of partisanship and race and class and region. This showed me that it was much deeper than I understood. Because mm-hmm. I actually thought at first, Derek, that because everyone is a target of this enemy, this is going to overcome some of those differences. That it it doesn't matter if you live in Arkansas or New York City. Right. But it turns out to matter a lot as far as how people have responded and how leaders have responded. And so if you look at countries we thought were sort of our junior partners in the liberal world order once upon a time, some of them have just done a lot better than we have. And, it, and, and the differences are not technological. Right. Um, the differences are s- social and political and psychological. That's what I meant about the fault lines and the buried rot, because a lot of it isn't good. A lot of it really is runs directly counter to any idea of a decent democratic society. I mean, I, I thought one thing that was really interesting about your piece was how you placed this crisis in a broader context. And, and you make the point that this is the third major shock that the United States has felt in the short 21st century, 9-11, 2008 financial crisis, and now this. And so, you know, placing it in that broader narrative, kind of tell the story of, of how that rot that you say we're now, we're now really smelling yeah. came about. Well, when you think of how confident Americans were in the year 2000 or 2001, Those were the days when Bill Clinton was saying that the internet would be the world's greatest engine for freedom. Sure. The biggest Um, fear was Y2K. Y2K, a glitch in our computer system. Incomes were going up. Inequality was actually leveling off for the first and only time since the late 70s. And, you know, Microsoft had an ad that said, isn't this a great time to be alive? 9-11 hit us. We remember it. If we're old enough, I was in New York. And the immediate reaction of Americans across the country was unity and solidarity, even with New York City, which throughout our history has been sort of seen as a hotbed of corruption, sin, foreigners, etc. Even New York City stood for America then. And I think it's because we still had the glue of the 20th century and of the crises of the 20th century intact, the Depression, World War II, the Cold War. But if you then chart the two decades from 9-11 to the pandemic, it's the story of gradual erosion of trust between Americans and other Americans and between Americans and their institutions, and especially above all the federal government. So 2008 came and it left a lot of Americans feeling as if the elites had kind of gotten away with it. Right. No one went to jail. Wall Street kept on keeping on. The banks got bailed out and the rich got richer. So 2008, which at first seemed like maybe a turn back to the reforms of the 30s, I think turned out to make Americans more cynical. So by the time you get to, and then of course there's the election of Donald Trump, which may be the fourth shock. Maybe we should count that. So by the time you get to 2020 and the pandemic, 
we we discover what we already knew but maybe didn't know well enough that uh, Americans can no longer mount a collective response to something on this scale. We're just not united enough. We don't live in the same reality. Our leaders are either ineffectual or uh, venal, and um, and and our businesses are either you know we're asking them to do too much things the national government should do, or they're looking for a short term profit as usual. So we have been left really, I, one of the analogies I used was like France in 1940 uh, b- before the, the onslaught of, of German invasion. And the reason I use that is because what the French discovered was that their society had gone rotten between the wars and they collapsed faster than anyone imagined, not because their army was inferior to the German army, although it was, but because their society no longer had the integrity and the cohesion to mount a defense. And that's that's what I see happening mm-hmm. here. I, that doesn't mean millions of Americans aren't showing great courage and generosity and patience. In fact, the reaction to the lockdown has been really encouraging. It remains overwhelmingly popular. Popular, And the vast majority of Americans are following it. Are following it. So you could say that we're finding out that civil society organizations that had to decide on their own to shut down because there was nothing coming from the government and individuals have really reacted as well as we could expect. Yeah. But our leaders have been absolutely nefarious. And I'm afraid that as we get closer to November, the fault lines are going to get deeper and sure. wider. I mean, sure. look at what's happening right now in Wisconsin, yep. where the state Supreme Court overruled the governor and said, you cannot continue the lockdown. And boom, overnight, the Wild bar West. started filling up. Yeah. Wild West is what the governor said. Yep. And now... Wisconsin is going to try to fight the pandemic county by county and town by town. Right. Trump Trump left it to the states. Wisconsin's Supreme Court is leaving it to the localities. You cannot fight something on this scale town by town. Right. I mean, one wonders, again, using the French analogy, and you talk about the book Strange Defeat. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful book by Mark Bloch, who ended up being executed by the Nazis as a resistance fighter. Right. Great historian, yeah. You know, we're going to know one way or another how all this ends. I mean, I guess is the, you know, is you're right, this this haphazard reopening in places like Wisconsin. Hard to find many public health experts who think that's going to end well. Uh, and what, what I mean by that is that you're not going to see a, an outbreak and, and, you know, a return to the sort of crisis atmosphere where there's a fear of hospitals getting overrun and medical systems breaking. Um, and one wonders, I mean, of course, no one wants that to happen, but if it happens, then one wonders whether that's, that's, you know, it's sort of a proof point that this is not the way to go about it. Right. And we, we won't know for, you know, for a, a few weeks or months, but I also worry that the next battleground is going to be the battleground over facts, which has been the battleground throughout Trump's presidency and the key fact of how many people are dying. Uh, judging from his tweets and from the fact that he now seems to be almost in open warfare with Dr. Fauci, mm-hmm. um, I think one, and I've read in the news that White House people are saying that one of their main 
weapons during the campaign is going to be an effort to deny the science and the facts of uh, the, the spread of this and right. to say you're exaggerating um, and essentially to do what Trump has always done, which is to fill the air with so much disinformation that people stop having the ability or even the will to try to dis- to discern and just they throw their hands up and says, who the hell knows? Right. But again, you can't spin sickness. I mean, you could you can spin the numbers, but if a hospital's overrun, a hospital's going to go overrun. Exactly. And that's been my thought all along, that unlike the, you know, Ukraine extortion, right. unlike Russiagate, this is going to, this hits people in their most important level of their life and it can't be spun. But I, I don't think that'll keep him from trying because the facts are so bad for him. If you, if you imagine two months ago, you said to Trump, in two months, 85,000 Americans will be dead and 36 million will be unemployed. Right. It's a staggering turnaround for him. And he's been absolutely frantically flailing yep. ever since because he wasn't, he, he doesn't have any ability to respond like a leader to something like this. It's just a personal threat to his his future, his interests. Right. I'd like to drill down a little more, George, with your observation about how other countries are handling it. And one thing I've been struck by, and and we at GMF, given our offices in Europe, I'm talking constantly to colleagues in Berlin and Brussels and Warsaw and Paris or Bucharest, and what's fascinating about the crisis is how, you know, what you said about the United States applies for really most of the world right now, which is we're all dealing with the same situation at the same time. I really can't think of a parallel in certainly in modern history, speaking with work colleagues, talking about schools reopening or not or staying closed, when you're going to be able to travel. And ed- obviously, every country is doing this a little bit differently. And, and there is although some countries are handling it better than others, there's wide discontent. I mean, the idea of opening up is not something that's unique to the United States and there's kind of this this pressure to open up. What's different clearly, as, I, as I've been observing it, is that government capacity is clearly very different. Trust, basic trust in institutions is different. But obviously the economic pain is pretty evenly felt at this point. But I'm just wondering, I mean, looking at, to the extent you have been, looking at other countries and then have, reflecting that back on us and what it says about us, is, what sort of struck you the most? Well, it's, it is, you're right, Derek, it's better not to uh, idealize any country because South Korea is now having a bit of a, a regression. Uh, I was talking to a German official yesterday who was saying there's a lot of upset about the lockdown in Germany and some of the and same- And they've had protests, you know, bringing yeah. together a wild kind of uh, conglomeration of, you know, far right, far left, you know, types. Anti-vax, anti-vax anti-Semite. Exactly. Yeah. Basically, you could say that anti-modern world, anti-liberal world, fact, which, which have been coming out a lot in the last decade or so, obviously throughout Europe. And so this is going to play out along those same lines. And- it's a lot to ask any people just to stay home and not work or not go to work and to live off a check from the government yep. and to be with your kids all day. I mean, th- this is a hell of a lot to ask. So, of course, there's going to be 
restlessness and protest, and it's going to happen everywhere, maybe more in Europe than in Asia, where there seems to be a little more social cohesion and trust. So we are not extraordinarily bad. But if you look at the numbers, we've had a third of the cases and more than a quarter of the deaths for weeks and weeks. That hasn't changed. And why should that be? Why Spain is in terrible shape. France is in really bad shape. UK is in bad shape. Of course, Italy. We had more time to prepare. We have, we are richer and we are bigger so that there should be less density and, and therefore less spread. But still we're, we're at the top. We have all the numbers you don't want. And what's, what's more, I think our divides, I mean, no one else except maybe Brazil has a president who is openly and constantly undermining the health, the public health of his people. Yeah. That's what Trump is doing. Yep. He is actually abetting the deaths of Americans. Mm-hmm. That, I don't see that happening anywhere in Europe. Yeah. Maybe Belarus. Belarus is, is probably the only one I could think of, right? Exactly. So that makes us really vulnerable because people still listen to him and, and people follow him. I think the biggest political question here is whether his core supporters will begin to waver when the virus comes to them. Right. That's, that's for me, the biggest political question of the year. Right. Because I, I, it's very hard for me to see how we will relinquish our number one position in, in the world in terms of the pace and the damage the virus is doing. Um, just given the course we're on, it doesn't feel like things are going to turn around anytime soon. And so one wonders that, and of course, we don't know what's going to happen in Europe as they're starting to open up. And we've seen in places like South Korea, as you said, you know, have some positive steps, but then uh, suffer uh, outbreaks, that we're, this could last longer here. And that you could see a situation where European countries look pr- relatively well, their economies are able to get online relatively sooner. They're able to open up a bit more, maybe even have more travel. And it's going to be Americans who aren't going to be let in to certain countries. And and there'll be a demonstrate kind of a global demonstration. That's when people ask me, you know, what's the effect going to be on a U.S. foreign policy I can think of a lot of things immediately that are already going to be affected, but this story is not over. And if the U.S. is mired in this crisis for much longer than the rest of the world, it's going to have a huge impact on American foreign policy. It, it will it will isolate us even more. We've yeah. self-isolated over the last few years. And unfortunately, America First has been Trump's rhetorical posture throughout the crisis which means we're not cooperating. We're not trying to find a vaccine with other countries. And and there's also the problem of our frayed safety net and our uh, antiquated unemployment system. I think Europe will be will come out of this ahead of us because they have hurt their people less yeah. during the months of uh, lockdown. Yeah. And people will come out of it a little bit stronger and more fewer businesses are going to go under fewer people are going to be hungry and desperate mm-hmm. um and and unemployed unemployment will last longer in this country because other countries have chosen not to 
lay people off. They've right. kept them on the payroll and paid the companies 90% of salaries or whatever yeah. the Netherlands is, is doing. So I think that's another way in which we could be, as you say, mired for longer because right. we have such a weak social safety net. Right. And then, as I said, it could be that Americans, you know, we like to think we're keeping things out of the U.S., right? But it could be that yeah. we're going to be kept out of other places. I mean, my friend and colleague, Yasha Monk, wrote a essay for The Atlantic at the start. He's been a GMF fellow, too. Yeah, I, I have no doubt. <laughs> I, I, it would have been weird if he wasn't a right. GMF fellow. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but Yasha wrote that for the first time, he was wondering whether he'd made a mistake by leaving Germany and becoming an American. And, and this was just after the German embassy in Washington told Germans in this country to go home, get out, go back to Germany. And I think it hit Yasha, who's become an American citizen in the last few years. It hit him really hard. So, George, I just have a couple more questions. I mean, one, you, you wrote a book seven years ago that, that is, you know, a book that I still recommend to everyone trying to understand how we got mm -hmm. here called The Unwinding. Thank you. And uh, we've talked a lot about it. You and I have. Uh, but, and um, you know, given, and it's very prescient in many ways, not just about how 2016 happened, but I think in many ways how this current crisis, the impact it's having on our country. So given the, the kind of deep, reporting and, and analysis you you did for the unwinding in the, on the kind of many facets of the decay of American society. What what's that surprised you about the crisis? Like if you, I mean, if you were mm. writing an afterword for the unwinding today, I mean, do you feel like there's something, because unwinding is a pretty sobering book, as you know. Is it worse than you thought? Is it about what you expected given where you saw things seven years ago? It's, it is worse. I didn't, I didn't think Trump would become president. I mean, as bad as things were as disconnected as people felt in parts of the country that I had reported in for the unwinding, I didn't think Trump would win. And I, nor did I think he would become ever more Trump with every passing week. So it's worse in, in many ways. But, you know, I've had this feeling since March when we all changed our lives that you know, you must change your life is the last line of a famous poem by Rainer Maria Rilke. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been trying to hang on to as, even though it's a frightening command, yeah. it's, it's also bracing. I feel like this has been a shock to find out how badly we've, we, we have handled it, we would handle it that I hope and think many Americans must be thinking we must change our lives. We Americans must change our lives. We cannot drift along um, on our relatively fat cushion of our economy and our legend in the world. Right. Because it's all, both of those uh, have, have no longer are working and how we change our lives is a big question, and maybe that's what I'll try writing about because I'm tired of writing books that people read and tell me that was so depressing. <laughs> um, right. I, I, I don't want to keep writing. I had this weird dream, Derek, that I was going to have another book out and the cover was black. And I didn't understand why the publisher was 
making the cover black because I wanted this not to be another black book. Right, right. But they still had a black cover on it. So what I really want is to write a book or an article that isn't black, that isn't just more darkness. And um, that's that's hard because you don't want to be Pollyannish. You can't just just think utopian thoughts. You have to start with where we are. But we are, uh, this feels like a reckoning. It it must be. Yeah. It must be. Well, I, and I agree. And despite the fact that your article, Underlying Conditions, is a sobering article to read uh, about you know, your your thoughts on what this crisis says about where we, we are as a country, you end on, a, on an optimistic note, or you try to, and you say that this upcoming election, this moment we're in, it, it needs to kill off the idea that that anti-politics, as, as you called it, the, pol- the kind of politics that allowed Trump to get elected, that that's the solution. And I wanted to ask, because I, I want to share that optimism, and I think both of us wake up every day looking for evidence of it. And there is evidence of it, as you say. I mean, there's whether it's people's, the social distancing and quarantine that folks are following to you know, the way people are trying to, in their community, step up to save small businesses. and Yeah, the, vo- the spirit of voluntarism, which really does, I think, remain strong here. It does. And the, and the way that, that the, what, what the, what we called after 9-11 first responders of, uh, you know, firefighters and, and policemen, that's now been expanded to the, the front line, folks on the front line, doctors, nurses, ambulance drivers, uh, the and fo- then the the essential workers, the essential workers, warehouse workers, exactly. grocery clerks, who uh, are keeping people things yep. afloat. So it feels like we've got the raw elements out there. There's just powerful forces working against that, and there's a pretty poisonous politics that it's hard to see how that. You know, it's interesting. I, I was reflecting back, George. I reread uh, another piece of yours that I would highly recommend everybody, <laughs> which is a piece you did for the New Yorker. Right before the 2016 election, the heart of which was an interview with Hillary Clinton, and Hillary Clinton said to you towards the end of the interview, she leaned forward and said something like, we've got to get this right, or who knows what's going to happen. And of course, this was before Trump got elected, and I think probably both of you thought that he wasn't going to get elected, but the article was about these underlying conditions that nevertheless were still there and were going to play out during her presidency. And at the end of that interview... And, and most of that piece is really about how the Democratic Party lost its right. old base right. in the working class, right. the white working class, right. at least, which turned out to be the difference in 2016. But during that interview, Clinton gave me a whole bunch of very smart ideas that she was running on, or at least supposedly, I hadn't really heard them very much during the campaign, about you know how to make corporations more responsive to employees and to consumers and to think more in the long term and less about quarterly earnings and how to strengthen the safety net and how to strengthen, you know, workers' protection and just basic stuff. And I remember thinking, and I wrote this, all of it made sense and I didn't think any of it would make a difference mm. in mm. the election. It mm-hmm. was too incremental. Yeah. And it it was too reasonable in a way Mm -hmm. to withstand, you know, the unbelievable headwinds coming at her Mm -hmm. and at the country. And just back to your question about those crises of the 21st century, the effect of them has been to discredit the two party establishments, the Democratic and Republican, and now to discredit the anti-establishment. Yeah. 
So in a way, we've passed through several stages of discrediting through each crisis. And where that leaves us, I don't know, but I know it doesn't leave us with incrementalism or with trust us because we are the political experts and the folks that... So it's an interesting year for Joe Biden, the most establishment of all Democrats in a way, to be the Democratic candidate. I think that's a sign of how desperately... Democrats want to beat Trump and their assessment that he has the best chance of doing it. I don't think it's an assessment of where Democratic voters want the country to go. They don't want it to go back to uh, the the year 2000 or the year 2008. Right. Um, we can't. We right. obviously we cannot, but we also should not because too much has gone wrong since. Then. Yeah, I think that's right, and also then points up, uh, emphasizes the importance of him being, as, as Biden has said, a bridge. And how that how that manifests, you can't see it at this point. We'll see who the vice president is. We'll see, yep. pop, but that's that's a thing way to think about it. Yeah, George, I've taken exactly. way too way too much of your time. I want to <laughs> last last question. But it was fun. <laughs> it's been it's been fun. I could go on for hours. Honestly, uh, last question though is: so, what have you been reading during this mm. time? Have you been able to read? And if you've been able to read, what 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 have you? I've been reading? done a, I've done a lot more reading than writing, and. The thing that I read most but like reading least is the internet. Yeah. So, you know, we talked about this, Derek. Yeah. I, you know, do far too much scanning of news and Twitter, et cetera. But the reading that's really helping me is number one, literature. So I, I'm in a book group and we were already about to discuss Brothers Karamazov. So we had to do a Zoom book group. Right. And and Brothers K, which is just an amazing piece of work. But I've also been reading some American history, yep. L- Lincoln's writings yep. and speeches. Yep. Um, Richard Hofstadter's history is of the populist and progressive Paranoid eras. style or the progressive tradition? Uh, the reform era. Reform era, The reform yeah. era. And the American political tradition, yep. which yep. is, yeah. And then a book called Drift and Mastery by Walter Lippmann, sure. which is a progressive era tract. I'm I'm just looking for glimmers of thought and feeling that Americans have had in the past that somehow got us through greater calamities such as the Civil War and and into the into the progressive and New Deal era. Yeah, I I got David Kennedy's doorstop of a book, Freedom from Fear. Yeah. Which is particularly because I wanted to get smarter on the Great Depression. And then I've also found myself gravitating towards books about experiences of of other kind of massive, either hardship or traumatic moments, national moments. And just to remind Mm. myself that there have been moments like this before, either in our country or elsewhere and how people persevere are resilient and overcome it. So what books, for So example, I've been are... reading, so my bedtime book, which is I try to keep it somewhat light, although it's a book about the Blitz, so it's not that light, but it's the new Eric Larson book, which I think a lot of people are reading because it's either number one or number two on the bestseller list. Mm. But the book, the next up is is The Warmth of Other Suns, the Isabel Wilkerson book. Isabel Wilkerson, yeah. Right, about the great migration of African-Americans right. to the North. Right. Because I want to think about big systemic change, but also, you know, folks who've in the past had to really basically renew their lives. It's interesting. One connection to the Blitz, right at the start of this, I read a another tract. I'm interested in political pamphlets as a form because I don't want to have to write another 500-page book <laughs> okay. right away. Right. Um, 
Orwell's little known pamphlet called The Lion and the Unicorn. Okay. Which he wrote during the Blitz. The first sentence is a kind of famous one. As I write, highly civilized human beings are flying overhead trying to kill me. And it's about Great Britain, England, as he calls it, on the, you know, being dragged into this global conflict. But his argument is in order to win the war against Hitler, England must also change. Mm. And what he wants is democratic socialism. And so he has... It's a kind of portrait of the country, but also a call to arms for the hidden England, as he calls it, to come to the fore and to get rid of this dead aristocracy that's been sitting on them for so long and to have a more egalitarian country. And so that's, yeah, like maybe like Larson's book, there is something bracing about reading that kind of thing that was written in conditions that are harder probably than what we're going through now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, George, thanks a lot for taking the time. I appreciate it. Loved it, Derek. Good luck and all the best to you and your family. Be Thank well. you. Post-Pandemic Order is a podcast from the German Marshall Fund of the United States. It's produced and hosted by Julie Smith, Derek Cholet, and me, Rachel Tausenfreund. Zachary Tarrant is, as always, our sound engineer and boss man. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.